Right, turning your Bibles, if you will, to the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And in some senses, I'd have kind of liked to have done this over two weeks, but it was quite good last week after the service. Sarah said that they've got a lot to go through with the children. She said, can you speak for a bit longer? I said, no problem. Okay, let's, uh, let's bow our hearts, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do just thank you. We rejoice that you are an amazing, wonderful, compassionate, loving God. Oh, Father, we thank you for all that you are doing and you have done and will do in our lives. Lord, it's a privilege to be here this morning that we can grow together in knowledge and grace. Father, we are looking forward to your return. Oh, Lord, how we look forward to that time when, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Lord, we'll be caught up to meet you in the air. And, Lord, you'll take us back to the place that you've prepared for us. Father, that is our hope. Lord, that is our destiny. But, Lord, in these days, Lord, as you tarry, Father, help us to be good and faithful witnesses for you. Lord, help us to witness of the fact and the truth of your resurrection to this world around us that is looking for answers. And Lord, you've given us the answers in your word. You've given us hope. You've given us a purpose and a reason. Father, as we study this morning and look at this last chapter, just help us to understand, to comprehend, Lord, the magnitude of these things. And Father, stir us, Lord, that we will be wanting and willing to go and share what you've done in our lives with other people. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it's been a quite an amazing study going through Mark. Uh, I hope you've been blessed by it, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly have. I mean, Mark for me was one of those Gospels that um, I'd read many times, but I didn't feel I'd connect, connected with, uh, if you know what I mean. Matthew is one of those Gospels, that there's so much in Matthew. Of course, you've got the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and you know, you've know you got the um, opening chapters, the bit about the Magi and things. There's lots in Matthew that we kind of, uh, kind of draw into. Luke also, there's lots of bits in Luke. Uh, and John's Gospel is just an incredible Gospel because of the things he covers and the way he writes. Um, so, so Mark, for me, was always one of those, you know, I tended to always go to the other three Gospels to find bits and, and quotes and, and things to study. Um, but having gone through it this time, this has become so special. You know, you start to get some of Mark's heart uh, as he was just wanting to share with us, you know, with, with any believers, what he'd seen, what he'd witnessed, what he'd heard about from Peter and the others. Uh, and he's writing all of these things down for us so that we would understand, that we would know, and that we would grow in knowledge and grace. So, we come to this final chapter, this chapter that really deals with the resurrection. And we start, verse 1, and when the Sabbath, now actually it's plural uh, in the, the Greek, if you've got a concordance of things, you can check these things out and go online. Um, the Sabbath, because we've got two Sabbaths, if we just go back to the, the chart, you can see as we come to the, the Thursday, the day of the crucifixion, you have the Friday, of course, and that in the evening of the Friday becomes the, the Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath. But the Friday itself was the Sabbath. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a high Sabbath. It was one of those special occasions for Israel where no work whatsoever was permitted so there's two Sabbaths that we get to, and then we get to the, uh, the Sunday morning very early. Oh, and, and by the way, you may find from time to time people will tell you they think the uh, crucifixion occurred on the Wednesday. Well, if that was the case, then it would have been the Passover. The next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it would have been the Friday morning the woman could have gone to the tomb. There would be no restriction on them going to the tomb. But the first time they go to the tomb is on the Sunday. 
um, which so it just does. There's no other way this this what this plays out. Um, and we're told so when the Sabbaths were passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Now, to just picture the scene, they don't know that there's a Roman guard there. They have no because that was something that happened after the crucifixion, after the burial. That's when the Jewish leaders go to Pilate and say, can you put a guard there? Because we're worried. We think that disciples are going to come and steal his body. So the disciples didn't know about the Roman guard. The women didn't know about this Roman guard. And so they're just going down to the tomb. But of course they have a big problem. The, the big stone had been rolled in front of the tomb. We're told, verse 2, that it was very early in the morning, the first day of the week. We know it was the Sunday, very clearly. And early again, that they, they'd... They got up, they wanted to get down there, the earliest possible opportunity. And we're told they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. So just as the sun is coming up, it's still fairly dark. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? I mean, this, this stone... It's been estimated people that have studied these things um, to cover the, the size of the door, typically about a five-foot door entrance to the to the tomb. Um, some of you, if you've been to Israel, you may have even been there. I've been to the very place uh, and seen the garden tomb. And uh, we're, we're sure for a number of reasons it is the one. Right next to Calvary, Golgotha. Um, and the door is about kind of a five-foot uh, door. And to get a stone that's large enough to cover that, um, it's been estimated it would be anything between one and a half to two tons. And so the women are going down there with this great intent to go and uh, anoint the, the body of Jesus. But they've got this issue. They think, well, how are we going to move the stone? Obviously, this is a conversation they've been having on the way. But when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away. And we're told, for it was very great. There's one of those little kind of add-ons to the sentence that we'd quite easily skip over and miss. We're talking about anything, you know, from one and a half to two ton or even greater stone. In one of the early manuscript copies of Mark's Gospel, there's a little note uh, in the side uh, that one of the scribes have put there saying that it would have taken 20 men to move this stone. Gives you some idea of the size of it. Now, it's interesting because the gospel writers each give us a slightly different aspect. Mark here tells us the stone was rolled away. And the, the term he used implies it was rolled uphill. That it had been a gully, that the stone would have rolled down into in front of the tomb. That it had been rolled uphill. But then Luke adds a little bit more. That it had been not just rolled up, but rolled away from the tomb as well. And John, in his account as a little bit more detail, implying literally it had been thrown clear of the site. Incredible amount of energy, power required to do that. Something that certainly the woman wouldn't have been able to do on their own. The disciples couldn't have done it in the, the dead of night and, and so on. This was quite a miraculous thing that the stone itself wasn't there. And in verse 5 was told, and entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side clothed in a long white garment. And they were affrighted. Well, I guess you would be. You know, you, you get to a situation like this, they're not sure what to expect. The, the tomb's open, they go inside, and there's somebody sitting inside the tomb. Now, we're not given any more details. We don't know anything about this individual, but it's one of those little incidentals that help to verify the account. You know, why would you even put this? It's not something you would just make up. But this individual, for some reason, we don't know who he was, 
but he'd come out early in the morning and was sitting in the tomb. He was told that they were afraid. They were frightened because of this. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Now this is interesting. Now, we're not sure whether this could have been an angel. We're not sure. We know certainly there were two angels there at one point, sitting either end of the place where the body of Jesus lay, just as with the Ark of the Covenant. You remember you had an angel each end of the, the lid, the mercy seat. And the blood of the offering would go onto the mercy seat. Well, in just the same way, the blood of Jesus would have been in that center part with an angel sat each end. This lovely model that we see coming down through Scripture. So whether this was an angel or not, we don't know. But certainly he's got information because the next thing that we're, we're told is, but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter. Why is Peter singled out? Well, Peter had three times denied that he was a disciple of Jesus. He said, I'm, I'm not a disciple. Three times he stated it. Graciously, if you go to the end of John's Gospel, you read the account where three times Jesus asked him that question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And graciously, God, Jesus restores Peter. You know, that, that kind of forgiveness, just, just overwhelming. You know, and we see it even in our own lives. Sometimes we, we deny him by things we say, by things we do. But he's gracious. And as John would later write, to forgive us all our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, this declaration that Jesus is alive, they, they don't believe it straight away. They, they, they're not really sure what to make of this. But they nevertheless, they, they leave and they head back, they run back to where the disciples are. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre. For they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now, we're going to see in a while that Jesus challenges them because of their lack of belief. And we're going to read some other accounts of some other witnesses of his resurrection in a moment. But these things have been foretold. Jesus had a number of times had said, it's recorded in Scripture as they were traveling down to Jerusalem over a period of about six months. A number of times Jesus reminded them or told them that he was going to suffer, was going to be killed, and he was going to rise again. And they still didn't believe. They, they, they try to understand it, try to make sense of it. They didn't believe that Jesus really was going to rise from the dead. And yet here they are greeted by this individual at the tomb who declares to them that Jesus is risen. And as we'll see, Jesus will provide Plenty of proof for them to see. But verse 8 ends here, for they were afraid. Now, you may have a footnote in your Bible, something like this. If you can read the text at the bottom, it says, verses 9 to 20 are not included in two of the best and oldest Greek copies of Mark. Well, that means that Mark's gospel ends. This is Mark who wanted to write to tell you how amazing, how incredible Jesus was. It ends with these ladies leaving an empty tomb, afraid. And the only suggestion of the resurrection is this 
young man who's not identified and we don't know, can't verify anything to do with that. And that's how most modern translations end this gospel. Other says that everybody knows again that it says that the best and the oldest. We'll come to that in a moment. Another Bible says verses nine twenty are not including two of the best and oldest Greek manuscripts of Mark. And you'll find if you look at some Bibles, they actually omit the whole text. Some Bibles that actually have the text, but there was a footnote say that really shouldn't have been there. And in some Bibles, you'll find that it's completely omitted, and it ends as you can see there at the end of verse eight, with they were afraid. And then there's a little footnote at the bottom that says, well, this was in some manuscripts, but much, much later. Now, what do we do with this? The two best and oldest manuscripts that are referred to are the Codex Sinaiticus, which is sometimes referred to as Codex A or Aleph. That's a copy or part of the copy. There's four parts of this, but part of that is in the British Library, the most substantial part. You're going to see it. It's on display if you're ever in London. And the other... Codex is Codex Vaticanus, which is held in the Vatican Library in Rome, which very few people ever get to see. It's kind of kept hidden away. Now, just a little note before we go and look at some of these details. The way that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are written, uh, it's in terms of the Greek text, there's two different ways of writing. To make it simple, basically, uh, these are written all in capital letters. Okay, there's 18 other manuscripts, all written in that same style, that include verses 9 to 20. Now, on that basis alone, and they all come from the same time period or earlier, on that basis alone, there's enough to dismiss this claim of the oldest and the best, because we've got at least 18 others that include these verses. There's also over 600 that are written as we would typically write with capital letters at the start of sentences but then lowercase in, in the Greek text. It's different, it's different styles of Greek writing. There's over 600 that all have got these verses in them. So you start to ask the question, why is it that almost all modern versions have got this little footnote? And by the way, there's over 100 early church fathers that we have records of that preached from these verses. That means they must have been there, yeah? If they preached from them. As I said, Codex Sinaiticus, um, Codex A, sometimes Aleph. Again, part of it relies in, is, uh, resides in the British Library. Uh, as I said, Vaticanus, uh, or B, sometimes referred to, uh, is in the Vatican since the 15th century. Now, <laughs> there's a great drama here. I want to try and take you through this. We've got, a, we've got a cast of players involved. Now, we start with people like Jude and Peter, and Paul, all who wrote what they wrote before 70 AD. And they warned that there would be people coming into the church that would bring in destructive heresies and doctrines. They would try and twist the truth. And they warn against this coming. And even in their day, these things were a real problem. Jude, in fact, writes his letter Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. 
But then he said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, in other words, this is what I want to write to you about, but it was needful, it was necessary for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And he goes on and says, For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see is, and John speaks about this as well, that there will be people coming denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us on to a time from about 100 AD onwards when a group of people referred to typically as the Gnostics, they claimed they had greater knowledge, who came onto the scene. And, and they took some of the bits the Bible said, but they also said, well, no, no, Jesus wasn't God in the flesh. He received this kind of God anointing for his ministry and so on. And they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And the hotbed of this Gnosticism was Alexandra in Egypt. And one of the principal proponents of that was a man named Oregon. And you can Google and you can do some searching if you want to find out a bit more about these things. And there's lots of um, debates that went on with the early church fathers and these individuals trying to stand on the truth of the word of God, trying to show that Jesus truly is God manifest in the flesh. Well, this all leads on to around about 390 AD, 400 AD, and an individual by the name of Jerome then translates the Bible into Latin. Vulgate just simply meaning for the popular people. So it's a popular Bible, a Bible for the people, the Latin Vulgate. You've probably heard of it. But this was translated from the Alexandrian text that had already been doctored, already been amended in certain places. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, when it comes into being from around about 315 AD onwards, from the time of Constantine onwards, and obviously still in existence today, adopts Jerome's Latin Vulgate as the principal Bible for the church. It became, in fact, it became the only Bible they recognized. And a number of councils and synod meetings and things that they had throughout the history of the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, they made it very clear the, the Latin Vulgate was the only Bible that was to be accepted. Well, then we get to the time of John Wycliffe, much later, 1384, who then gives us a translation of the New Testament, the first kind of proper English translation that we have. And that then leads on very quickly to the time of Gutenberg in 1455 AD, who invents the printing press. You know, the first thing ever printed was the Bible. And then Erasmus of Rotterdam, born in 66, decided to set about collating all of these documents, these manuscripts, some 5,000 in existence, and bring them all together, and from which he comes up with something that becomes known as the Textus Receptus, or the received text. It's the Bible, effectively, that had been used from the early century by the church, not by the Roman Catholic Church, but by people that were defending the faith. Of course, you're familiar with people like William Tyndale. We'll talk about him in just a moment. And then eventually we get to James I. Again, we'll come back to him. Just looking at this timeline, the New Testament books are written. Um, actually, I need to amend this because I've got 96 AD there. A lot of scholars say that uh, Revelation was the last book written, and it was written about 96 AD. 
um, or possibly John's epistles. Um, I'm backtrack, backtracking on that now because things I've read recently and studied, I'm pretty sure that all of the Bible books, every book we have was written before 70 AD. And there's lots of good evidence now to show that's the case. The more we discover, the more we learn, the more we know. Which means that every book was written within the, the lifetime of the people that actually experienced and saw those things. And of course, careful copies then were made and spread around the world during those early centuries. As we said already, the Alexandrian cult arrives, these Gnostics in Egypt, and they made their own copies, their own versions of the Bible. <clears throat> the Council of Nicaea in 325 largely was set up to address this problem and to come up with a statement of faith. You know, that the, the, the creed as we have it, you know, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, you know, so on. That was brought about by the Council of Nicaea, 325, to address this problem. And to address the fact that all these versions of the Bible were going around denying the deity of Christ. <clears throat> There's various other councils that we can refer to historically. As we said already, uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate ran about 400 AD. Wycliffe wrote it as a hand-copied. I mean, imagine, you know, writing out the Bible by hand, but translating it as he's doing it. And again, we get to Erasmus, as I said, who gives us the received text. Loads of Bibles during that time were being produced and translated. And finally, William Tyndale finishes his work. If you go up to London, near Westminster on the embankment, um, there's a statue of Tyndale, and it's got a couple of quotes from him. One of the, He was challenged once because of this work of translation he was doing by some uh, individual in the church. And he said, if God spare my life, before many years I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Well, you know what? That's true today. There's a lot of people that have maybe menial tasks, menial jobs, but they know a lot more than many people in many pulpits. You know, many ministers go to Bible cemetery, sorry, seminary. That's an easy mistake. And, and, and they're, they're told to distrust the Bible, not to believe that it's the Word of God. And we'll, we'll comment about some of those things in a moment. <clears throat> His dying prayer, we in it was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Wow, what a prayer, because that happened. And of course, James I comes to the throne, and for various reasons, he authorizes an English translation to be made. Of course, what becomes known as the, the King James. As we said, we've got Erasmus, we've got the received text, just compiled these Greek documents and so on. And then there's many others, Tyndale, Rogers, Coverdale, loads of different translations starting to come onto the scene, all based on these manuscripts. And they agreed in all but a few spelling variations. There's no disagreement in the text. And there have been a number of translations and revisions up to 1611. But when the King James Bible came along, scholars finally settled on that as an English translation for the people. And it's a very remarkable thing. If you do a bit of studying, you find out how many Bibles were translated during this period of time, you suddenly realize that from 1516 to 1611, loads of Bibles came off the scene. But after that point, there was hardly any new translations for the next 400 years. That's incredible. Why? Well, because people were happy, content. They finally had something that was true to the original Hebrew and the Greek. And it wasn't that there was a lack of scholars. People were able to check and go back and look at these things. They were content that what they had was good. Now, 
and translated to the King James Bible, put this note in the front of it. It says, truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make a bad one uh, a good one, but to make a good one better. Or, out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against, that has been our endeavor. So in other words, they were compiling the work that many scholars had done over many years, going back to the original autographs wherever they possibly could, or certainly the, the earliest copies that we have, and then giving us the translation that we have. <clears throat> Dr. Lawrence Vance says this, The authorized version eclipsed all previous versions of the Bible. The Geneva Bible was last printed in 1644, but the notes can continue to be published with the King James text. Subsequent versions of the Bible were likewise eclipsed for the authorized version. Let me just clarify, people use that phrase, is authorized by King James. That's what it means. It doesn't mean it's authorized by God. It was authorized by King James. He authorized the translation of this Bible. The authorized version was the Bible until the advent of the revised version and ensuing modern translations. Now, that leads us on to these new versions. Now, in 1881, the English revised version comes onto the scene some 300 years or so after the King James had been translated. And then we have the revised standard version, which was produced in 1966. Now, I don't know if you can see the text. Let me just read that to you. It says, Yet the King James Version has grave defects. By the middle of the 19th century, the development of biblical studies and the discovery of, discovery of many manuscripts, more ancient than those upon which the King James was based, made it manifest that these defects are so many and so serious as to call for revision of the English translation. That is a very bold claim indeed. You see, we have to ask the question, does the King James have grave defects? It's not saying it. I mean, if this was on Wikipedia, there'd be an asterisk saying, you know, citations they need reference. You know, are the defects in the King James so many and so serious as being alleged here? And does more ancient mean better? How could the 47 or the 54, and actually, you know, with 47 individuals that translated the King James, there was Westminster, there was Oxford, and there was Cambridge, these three groups, they all went to, to translate certain portions, and they did their bits, and they got together, and they swapped, and they checked each other's work, and they went back and revised it. Seven years it took them to do it. How could all of those been so badly wrong that all these errors and defects and so on? Well, the only basis for this statement is the point where it says that the discovery of many manuscripts, well, that many is a little bit misleading because there's only two, more ancient, which is what's alleged, than those of the King James. That's the only thing that's changed in all that time. So now, the second part of this drama, these individuals, Constantine Simonides, Pope Gregory XVI, Constantine von Tischendorf, the Jesuits, a name you may have heard of, and then two individuals, Brooke Westcott and Fenton Hort, another individual, Kurt Allen. And then we'll kind of draw this to a conclusion and get back into the text. Now, let's start with Simonides. From 1820 to 1890, his lifespan, he was an excellent paleocalligraphist. What does that mean? It means he was very familiar and his job was looking at studying ancient writings, looking at them in terms of when they were written and so on. He really understood his, his role, his job. Now, between 1839 and 1841, he lived at a monastery in Mount Athos. During that time, 
he was actually commissioned to produce an old-style Bible as a gift for the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas I. It was as a thank you for the kindness that Nicholas I had shown to the church. So he's commissioned to do this this work and this job. Now, it just so happens that he was provided with a, an unused, bound ancient codex for his task. So somebody had, at some point in the past got this codex, these leaves of vellum, put them together, but never actually written on it. So he's given this, he's like, well, let's use this, and we'll produce an old-style Bible that we can give to the Tsar as a gift. So Simonides then sets about his work and produces this copy of the Bible as best as he can. Now, Pope Gregory XVI, all at the same historical time, became pontiff in 1831. In his tenure, he had 110 people put to death, many by being walled up. If you don't know what that means, basically they would literally build a wall up around them. Every day they would go in and they'd add another layer of bricks until they eventually got trapped in the wall and they would suffocate and die or just for malnutrition or for whatever other reasons. Uh, there were other ways that they invented, because by this point, publicly burning people wasn't seen to be acceptable. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church came up with a whole new load of different ways um, to get rid of people they didn't like. One individual, um, Gresby uh, Balzani, was beheaded for criticizing him. It gives you some indication of what this pope was kind of like. Now, like every pope before him, and since really, he didn't want the Bible to be read. As I said already, the only Bible that the Roman Catholic Church accepted up to this point was the Vulgate. <clears throat> that was enforced and um, cemented in the sense of the Council of Trent in 1546, a little bit before this, but they were very keen on this. Now, in about 1475, another new Bible was discovered. Okay, This is the Codex Vaticanus, or Codex B, we mentioned earlier on. This is one of these two manuscripts. But it was kept locked away in the Vatican, and very seldom was anybody allowed to see it or view it or anything else. Where it came from is never uh, allowed to be questioned, and nobody's allowed to really do any research to find out the, um, the provenance of it and so on. <clears throat> but it was different from the Textus Receptus, which at that time was being copied and translated and sent around the world by Bible societies, much to the chagrin of the Vatican. Now, in front of me, you may be able to see on the table, there's a very old Bible. If you open it up and have a look in the front cover, you'll find that it was written, the date in there is 1849. It was a gift from Peter and Diane to me, which I'm very grateful for. I love it very much. What I love about it is if you look at it, and you go to any page of scripture, any, any portion, and you'll see copious notes and commentaries. And guess what? It says exactly what we say today. You can turn to Daniel 70 week in Daniel chapter 9 and you can see laid out there what we teach, what the Bible says today. Nothing's changed. You know, in terms of the understanding, what was happening, the incredible thing is that is a family Bible. That was being used in families around the world. And really we have Bible scientists in this country and then in America producing these things, printing them, sending them around the world. The Vatican hated it. Because there's nothing that exposes the lies of the Roman Catholic Church more than the Bible itself. And the real issue for the Vatican was that these things were being produced. Something had to be done to discredit the Bible, the Textus Receptus, which was being used for all of these Bibles. Just as a comment on the Vaticanus itself, 
the Westminster Dictionary of the Bible says this, it should be noted that there is no prominent biblical manuscripts in which there occur such gross cases of misspelling, faulty grammar and omission as in Codex B or the Vaticanus. In fact, to call it a Bible is not, is not even correct because the first 46 chapters of Genesis are missing and many other books in the Old Testament are missing. The last half of Hebrews are missing and so on. It's not a complete manuscript by any means. David Brown, Dr. David Brown makes this comment. He says, the entire manuscript has been mutilated. Every letter has been run over with a pen, making exact identification of many of the characters impossible. He says, I question the great witness value of any manuscript that has been overwritten, doctored, changed, and added to for more than 10 centuries, he suggests. Now, question the time frame, but he's simply saying that how can we rely on this? How can we point to this as something that we make important decisions about when it's in such a state itself. What we do know, of course, is that this is based upon the Alexandrian text. Okay, let's move on, because then we get to Constantine von Tischendorf. Now, Pope Gregory invited this scholar, who's a Lutheran. Now, I've already told you a little bit about this Pope and how he hated any dissenters, anybody that wasn't in a complete agreement with the Roman Catholic Church. You can imagine just a general feeling amongst Catholics towards Lutherans, people who followed Martin Luther. It was Martin Luther that really kicked this whole storm up in the first place, as far as they were concerned, with the Reformation. And there was others involved, of course. But Pope Gregory invites Dischendorf, this Lutheran scholar, to the Vatican. And not only does so, but welcomes him with open arms and allows him to view the Vaticanus and they get very chatty and very pally. And the interesting thing is that Tischendorf then sets off on a five-year journey to discover other ancient manuscripts. And he seems to have limitless funds. He'd long had the ambition to be a great discoverer and wanted to discover texts. That was one of the things that he, he wanted to do. And now seemingly everything was set up nicely for him. This is in his own words. He says, But we have at last hit upon a better plan even than this, which is to set aside this text as receptors altogether and to construct a fresh text derived immediately from the most ancient and authoritative sources. This was his plan. His plan was to put aside the Textus Receptus. Exactly the same plan that the Pope had. Interesting they had this meeting, isn't it? Eventually, his travels bring him to St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, which, of course, isn't Mount Sinai, but it's called Mount Sinai. You understand what I'm saying, I think. Tischendorf described it in his own words. I perceived a large and wide basket full of old parchments, and the librarian told me that two heaps like this had already been committed to the flames. What was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers? He goes on to explain that in this wastebasket he finds this copy of the Sinaiticus. This incredible Bible. There are actually a couple of different visits he has. He takes some leaves, the way that the um, um, the parchment or the, the vellum is folded together, is in sections. He gets to take away some first of all, and then he comes back a little bit later, promising to borrow this manuscript. There was no intention of returning it at all, and takes the rest of this away. Just a couple of obvious pointers here. His suggestion is that these Individuals at this monastery who prided over these texts had some in a wastebasket basket ready to, to destroy them, burn them. That doesn't make sense if you know anything about these kind of monasteries and how they protected these things. Secondly, vellum doesn't burn. 
It would just produce smoke. It's the last thing you would use for burning or for, for heat or for any other purpose. It doesn't make any sense at all. Loads of problems with his claim. David Brown makes this comment. He says, Tischendorf, the discoverer of the Sinaiticus manuscript, noted at least 14,800 changes which have been made on this manuscript by others than the, copy, than the original copyist. So this has been doctored. It's been messed about. People have tried to write over things and, and so on. Dr. Bill Cooper says this. Through the Jesuits, uh, sorry, through the Jesuits, who had been set up in the 16th century expressly for the purpose of overturning the Reformation, the Vatican had tried unsuccessfully for 300 years to overthrow the Reformation Bible. That Bible had been translated into many languages from the received texts of the Greek New Testament. The closest that it came was the Douay-Rheims Bible of 1610. But it was based on a very faulty translation, which is actually the Latin Vulgate, and it showed. This Jesuit version simply did not, as they say, cut it. So the next two centuries were spent finding another way. And when it came, the Jesuits were ready. When you look at Sinaiticus, and you can actually do this now online, because they photographed high-quality images, every single page of the, the Sinaiticus in the British Library, and you can go online and you can actually see this, this is where I got this image from, you start to see a number of issues. One of them is blemishes on the paper itself, and you can see a couple there pointed out. You've also got wormholes, where worms have literally bored through. But the text goes around those holes. Where there's blemishes, the, the text avoids the blemishes. What does it tell you? We don't have to be any scholar to realize that the text was written after those blemishes had been made. That those wormholes were created on this old vellum, and then the text was added later. There's no difficulty in understanding that. I and mean, You can go online, you can see these things. There's many examples uh, in the, that you can see as you go through the pages of the Sinaiticus online. <clears throat> Just as an aside, Herman C. Hoskius says this, uh, that there are 3,036 textual variations between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. So these two manuscripts that are, are pointed out, remember what we said at the start, that they're seen as being older and better, more reliable. There's over 3,000 differences between those two in just the Gospels alone. And so estimate over 9,000 discrepancies between these principal two Alexandrian manuscripts. John Bergen said this, the impurity of the text exhibited by these codices is not a question of opinion but fact. In the Gospels alone, Codex B or the Vaticanus uh, leaves out words or whole clauses no less than 1,491 times. It bears traces of careless transcriptions on every page. This chap I just quoted was the dean of Chichester Cathedral just down the road for some time. Um, and he fought, we're going to talk about these two in a moment, Westcott and Hort, and the corruption that they brought on to the scene. Regarding Codex A and B, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, he says, it's easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ, the one from the other, than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. And yet these are put forward, and in modern Bibles, you have a footnote saying that they're the oldest and they're the best. They don't even agree with each other. They've got chunks missing. They've got bits written over and so on. During all of this time, the Vatican, Pope Gregory XVI, 
launches this into, how did we pronounce that? Praesipuus, I don't know how you pronounce that. Basically, it was an attack on the Bible societies. It was saying that the Bible societies were doing a grave disservice. And the thing is, you might be able to read the text at the bottom. It says, indeed, what is even more absurd and almost unheard of, they do not exclude the common people of the infidels from sharing this kind of a knowledge, the Bible. That's what the Roman church was saying. How can these Bible societies allow the Bible to go out to people? And then they question, of course, the validity of the text and all sorts of things. Of course, this was all setting itself up for the unveiling of the Sinaiticus, at which point the, the, the Vaticanus suddenly is launched into the public uh, arena again as another manuscript that supports the Sinaiticus and so on. So these two older and more reliable manuscripts are now out there and everybody's being told that they're more reliable and the Textus Receptus we can't trust. Now these uh, two individuals, Westcott Hort, come onto the scene a little bit later on. Um, one was an Anglican minister, one was a university professor. Um, they rejected Genesis as historical, just to give you some background from the things they wrote. They supported the Darwinian view of evolution. Uh, they questioned whether there was really a literal devil, and they rejected completely a literal hell. And they supported the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Uh, it just seemed fine candidates for Anglican ministers to me. And it goes on, it says, uh, they also rejected the basis of the atonement, and yet they believed in baptismal regeneration. They questioned the historical figure of David, whether it actually existed, and they said the second coming was just spiritual. They were also leaders of a society focused on the paranormal that later became known as the Cambridge Ghost Society. I wouldn't trust these people with anything. And yet, sadly, let me just read this. Uh, the Cambridge Ghost Society was founded in 1851. In 1853, two years after its founding, Hort and Westcott agreed upon the suggestion of publisher Daniel Macmillan, to take part in an interesting and comprehensive New Testament scheme that is to undertake a joint revision of the Greek New Testament. And that's what they did. Hardly good candidates for this, but nevertheless, they said about this. And so the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus became the basis for Westcott and Hort's translation. Bill Cooper says this. When the apostate scholars Westcott and Hort set about their self-appointed task of undermining the Texas Receptus, they did their job thoroughly. The immediate result in their own day was a profound distrust toward the New Testament at all levels of society in both Britain and America. They must have been astonished at their own success. Their revised version of 1881 achieved at a stroke what the Jesuits had been laboring toward for centuries, and the critics have never looked back. Westcott and Hall were responsible for the greatest feat in textual criticism. They're responsible for replacing the universal text of the authorized version with the local text of Egypt, the Roman Catholic Church. They've been deceived into believing that the Roman Catholic manuscripts of Vaticanus and Aleph or Sinaiticus were better because they were allegedly older. They produced a New Testament manuscript that is used almost exclusively for modern versions of the Bible. Come on to this final character, and then we tie it together. Kurt Allen was a German theologian. He's credited with the revision of the New Testament, known as the Nestle and Allen text. You may have seen 
those phrases, those notes in Bibles, Nestle Allen text, and which version. By his own and candid admission, he did not believe in the slightest that the Bible was the word of God. He claimed that virtually none of the New Testament books were authentic, even the Gospels being all forgeries. He initially tried to get Hebrews, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude and Revelation dropped from the New Testament canon. There's another quote by Dr. Bill Cooper, and this is from his book, Authenticity of the New Testament, which I thoroughly recommend everybody getting and reading. He says this, So the next time you open your ESV or NIV or any other modern version from Allen's stable, take a moment to think on the man who did more than any of his colleagues to bring them before the world. They are not the pure word of God that they pretend to be, and are certainly not the fruit of the, of the man who loved the word of God. On the contrary, like apostates Westcott and Hawk before him, he openly despised that word and devoted his entire life to its perversion and ultimate destruction. The result of the work of Westcott and Hort and Allen and all these individuals has been this. If you look in modern versions, you will find a plethora of verses that are missing. Just, just not there. If you go to the websites of these, these people that produce them, they'll tell you they should never have been there in the first place. <clears throat> Is it an issue? Should we be concerned about it? Well, let me just show you some examples of some of the verses that are missing. In Acts 8.37, we have this scripture about the eunuch. It goes from verse 34, verse 35, verse 36, verse 38. Where's verse 37? It's missing. It's gone. Just not in the text at all, in the modern versions. Is it important? What does the verse say? There is a footnote. It says, some manuscripts add verse 17. Uh, No, actually, what's happened is the modern versions have deleted it. And the verse is this. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart that thou mayest, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is that important? Kind of important, I think. It's one of the basis and foundation of our faith, and yet that is removed. you go to first john chapter 5 7 and 8 an age-old controversy sometimes referred to as the johannine comma this is this is this is for the three that testify the spirit the water and the blood and three are in agreement well that's not what the text really says it's, but there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the holy ghost these three are one and there are three that bear witness in the earth the spirit the water and the blood these three agree in one it's a great verse that demonstrates the trinity and it's removed it's taken out of modern versions. And what you'll find is that this, this comment in the text of the bottom normally, late manuscripts of the Vulgate testify in heaven, the Father Word, and it goes on. And it says, not found, you see right at the bottom, not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century. Okay, that's from the NIV Study Bible, and it says that. That is a blatant lie. This Johann and Comma, this, this little section, is omitted in the NIV, and the footnote, as I said, makes it clear, not found in any manuscript before the 16th century. It's just not true. It's quoted by Cyprian at Carthage, 250 AD. It's part of the text for the Latin manuscript known as R. It dates to about 300 AD. It's quoted by two Spanish bishops in 385 AD. It's quoted by many African bishops in the 4th century, and so on and so on. We could spend five minutes going through all the evidence, all the proof to show that that was there in the early manuscripts. And yet, the NIV Study Bible says that it wasn't found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century. That is a blatant lie. 
Why would they do that? And what happens to people that don't have the opportunity or the time to study and to go into all these things? They'll end up going, oh, well, dismiss that. I happen to know of one individual lady who her faith was shipwrecked almost by a sincere but misguided individual who told her off for using those verses when witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness. Because, oh, you shouldn't use that because they weren't in the original. And she said, but I've used that many times. He says, yeah, but that's not in the Bible. She said, well, but it's in my Bible. And her faith was really shaken as a result of that. Take take this one. This is another modern version. I don't really want to name names, but this is a quote from Matthew 2, verses 7 and 11, speaking about when the Magi arrive and so on. And it says in verse 9, After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. Anybody spot a problem with that? Well, it wasn't really an interview for a star, but that's not the issue. This text in a Bible says that the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. No, the King James, the accurate translation, the Texas Receptus, says this, When they heard heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Can anybody tell me in that bottom section where the name Bethlehem appears? It doesn't. I was horrified. I was reading through this with a meter a year or so ago. I could not believe it. They've just inserted something in the text because they think that's what it meant. And now everybody will read this and they'll, they'll accept it that, oh, well, the Magi went to Bethlehem. Well, the Bible says it. No, it's not the Bible. It's a perversion of Scripture. And some people, oh, does it really matter? Yeah, it does actually. Because... The Magi never went to Bethlehem. Following the birth of Jesus, from Scripture we know that after eight days he was circumcised. After 41 days, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple and presented him to the Lord according to the law. That's where they met Simeon and Anna. And then they returned home. Where else would they go? To Nazareth. Luke 239. When they performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Very clear. The Magi never went to Bethlehem. And why is it important? Because when Mary and Joseph offer the sacrifice when they get to Jerusalem, what do they offer? Anybody remember? Turtle doves. Why? Because they couldn't afford a lamb. But if the Magi had gone to Bethlehem, they'd have had this gold and all this stuff. It means that Mary and Joseph would have broken the very law that they were chosen by God for being devout, for keeping. How about this one? Verse 34 of... John 2, verse 34. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Some manuscripts read the Son of God. Is there a difference? Oh, I think there's a big difference. Huge difference. And even a nine-year-old could spot it, because two years ago I asked Marla, and she goes, that's not saying the same thing. How about this one? 
1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but us who are being saved is the power of God. It goes on. Is the problem with that? Oh, yeah. Being saved. Isn't the message of the cross that it is finished? Didn't Jesus offer one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down on the right hand of God? No, no, no. If you go again to the text of Receptus, the King James, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish fallenness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. There is no question from the Hebrew, and I'm no, sorry, from the Greek, and I'm a Greek scholar, but I've got enough intelligence to be able to work out and read through these tools that we've now got access to online. There is no justification for putting being saved there. And by the way, a number of versions do it three or four times. That is a, a doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that we're on this process of being saved. No, no, no. Scripture says we are saved. It's, it's the work of grace. In fact, actually, this being saved implies not yet complete, still work to be done. But the Greek actually states that we are the recipient of the action, that we are saved. It's something that's given to us. And no justification whatsoever for that mistranslation. There's an agenda here. I hope you're starting to see it. Galatians 6, verse 15 and 16. Look at this. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. It's talking about circumcision. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. It's what counts is that we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. What counts is what it says. That implies works, which is concerning. But it's again not about what we can do, it's about his grace. But more importantly, this statement, the new people of God. Look what the, the text really says. For in Christ Jesus, neither the circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, in other words, not about what we do, but a new creature. And this is, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, who's he talking to, the Gentiles, and upon the Israel of God. This verse completely obliterates Israel from the text. It's speaking, when it's speaking of the Israel of God, it's speaking as Romans, as Paul does in Romans 11, we have two parts to Israel, those that were blinded and the remnant. The remnant those that became the early church, the Israel of God. Very clear, very simple distinction. That verse totally destroys that text. What about this one? Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Anybody spot a problem there? It's a denial of the deity of Christ. It's a denial of the Trinity. Look, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. That verse in that modern translation says, For it pleased God in all his fullness that it was pleased to live in Christ. It, it separates Christ from God. It's subtle, but it's all the way through modern translations. Modern translations also change plural to singular and vice versa. Both Paul and Jesus build arguments based upon those things, and their arguments break down if you change those things. You can't mess about with the text. In one version, modern version, there's over 2,000 changes from single to plural. And there's 1,600 gender changes. These things do matter. Most modern versions are produced that offer dynamic equivalence. 
Okay, what basically they're saying is that they, in fact, one version, this is what it states, it says the version was designed not for word-for-word accuracy, but rather for phrase-for-phrase accuracy. Well, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but what does Jesus say? What does the scripture say? That every word of God is pure. Jesus said, for very last century, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. And these people are giving us what the phrase means rather than what the words say. Revelation warns about adding or taking away from his words. You know, this is a really important point. If you're reading a modern version, you need to understand you are reading a commentary at best. It's a comment, it's a commentary by the translators of what they think the Bible says. But it is not what the Bible says. So you need to be extremely careful. By all means, if you want to carry on using them, use them. I don't know why you would want to, but if you do, then understand that it's at best a commentary. It's not scripture. It's been perverted so much and it's getting worse and worse and worse. One modern translation differs from the King James in over 36,000 places. The Greek text underlying the translation of a particular modern version differs from the text of Receptus in over 5,700 instances. That's just the Greek, that's New Testament. One of these statements says, the blood of Christ is the most important and precious word and theme, but it was lacking in many New Testament references. It's replaced by death or costly sacrifice. Both good words in their own place, but not what the Holy Spirit gave in the original text. One version even does this in Romans 15. Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy, fill your life with peace, and it goes on. The God of green hope? God nowhere gives himself that title. I'd be very cautious about starting to give God titles that he hasn't chosen for himself. Since 1880s, most contemporary translations of the New Testament have relied upon relatively few manuscripts discovered chiefly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Such translations depend primarily on these two manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, because of their supposed greater age. The Greek text, uh, text obtained by using these sources and the related papyri is known as the Alexandrian text, as I've said to you already. This is the preface to the King James. It says this, However, some scholars have grounds for doubting the faithfulness of the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, since they often disagree with one another, no kidding, and Sinaiticus exhibits excessive omission. In fact, Vaticanus even more so. Scholars doubt their faithfulness. They often disagree with one another. Again, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus exhibit excessive omission. So why would anybody want to use those manuscripts? Why would these scholars use that as the basis for their translations? Okay, so it's come to light. We now know that Sinaiticus was a forgery inspired by the Vatican. No longer is it a debate over different translations. It's no longer about one person's opinion, what they prefer to another. There's a very clear line that's been drawn. Almost all modern versions of the Bible can be shown to be based upon a Vatican-inspired forgery, and it has massive ramifications. But it does give us a powerful apologetic tool in a number of ways. But we must be aware that many books published with Bible on the cover are in essence merely commentaries at best. You need to know again that not all Bibles are the same. If we're ignorant of this, we leave ourselves open, wide open to the critics. 
There's so many modern versions that blatantly contradict each other and contradict the text itself. They miss whole verses out, change singles to plural, as I said already, replace words, change the meaning of the verse, and so on. But God has preserved his word. Every detail, letter, number, and name. His word is settled in heaven and it stands forever. So let's just get back to this question of Mark 16.30-20, which is omitted. Again, just remind you, Mark 8 ends with, for they were afraid. But that is not where Mark ended. Amazingly, amazingly, when you look at the Sinaiticus, you see that big space? That's the end of Mark's gospel in the Sinaiticus. It's exactly the same in the Vaticanus. And this whole group of these folios, these bits, this section of the text, has been written by the same calligrapher. The person that wrote the Vaticanus is the same one that wrote this particular section of the Sinaiticus. We, we know it's not as old as they say it is. And the bit that they've missed out, those last 16 verses, well guess what? The space there is exactly the right space for those 16 verses. It's purposely been taken out, rewritten, they had to leave the spacing so that everything married up when they put it back in, and they put it back in without those last 16 verses. Why? Because what is touted by critics and scholars is that Mark was the first gospel written. And they say that the others were written over 100 years later. And if Mark ends at verse 8, there is no resurrection. And so they say that the other gospel writers all added to the resurrection later on. That is the foundation of our faith. We need not be at all worried when people tell us that that wasn't in the original. You just turn around and tell them that actually what they're basing their belief on is a Vatican-inspired forgery, and we can prove it, we can demonstrate it in so many ways, and I've only given you a fraction of the information this morning. But let's just read out the text of this chapter, because we want to end on a high. Because Jesus is risen, and we're told in verse 9, now when Jesus was risen, this is what Mark says, when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he'd cast seven devils. And she went and told that had been with him, told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. But we're told, and as they went, they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, but they believed not. Still this, this lack of belief. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. That's on that road to Emmaus. Incredible portion of scripture. And they, 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 their eyes are finally open as Jesus sits with them and breaks bread. And maybe they look at his hands and they see those nail prints in his hands. And they went and told them, they rushed back to Jerusalem. They find the others and say, Jesus is alive. And they went and told it to the residue. Neither they believed them. After he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, was Judas no longer with them, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. See, they were frightened, they were afraid. They certainly wouldn't have had the courage to go to the tomb and take on this Roman guard, which, by the way, Matthew's the only one that gives us that account. Matthew would have been a friend of these guards because he was a tax collector, he was a servant of Rome previously. And Matthew gets the inside information from these guards. And they're bought off by the Jewish leadership. They go to the Jewish leadership and say, "What? this is what's happened, Jesus has risen from the dead. They see the angel, they're there as dead men, we're told. 
These weren't just some mamby-pamby, you know, skinny Roman soldiers wearing miniskirts, as often you see in drawings and pictures. These, these were like the SAS of the day. They were the best of the best. This elite fighting force. They were highly trained and skilled soldiers. And they're told to tell this story that they fell asleep and they're paid off. How much? Well, probably enough to cover them for retirement because they could never work again. They'd never be able to go and work alongside other colleagues. They'd never be able to go back to Rome and get another job doing anything because they fell asleep on the job. That's the story that goes out. So the Jewish leadership would have to pay them off immensely. And the whole story that they present is ridiculous because the story that they're told to say is that we fell asleep and his disciples came and stole the body. Well, if you fell asleep, how do you know it was his disciples? I'd love to be able to quiz them on that. No, it doesn't work. No way. See, even at this point, after Jesus is risen, the disciples still had trouble believing and Jesus appears to them in the upper room. And just tells the disciples off for their unbelief and not believing, not trusting. And he said unto them, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the remarkable thing is that these frightened, timid disciples then get up and they go out and they do this. They have this witness presented to them. Firstly, the man in the tomb and then Jesus himself, Mary, of course, the disciples coming back from Emmaus and Jesus himself. These witnesses presented to them and then they become witnesses. And they go out and every single one of them, apart from John, as far as you know from history, died a horrible and painful death. No longer were they fearful and afraid. They were bold. They knew that going out and witnessing to the fact that Jesus was risen could cause problems. But they didn't care because it was true. And finally it says, verse 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And by the way, it's not saying that baptism is a prerequisite for salvation because the next verse makes it clear that he that believes not shall be damned. The, the, the important thing is believing. Baptism is something that follows our belief and it's an outward sign of our belief. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Of course, Acts 28, 1-6, there's the account of Paul, who, landing on this island, puts his hand into this, it was gathering sticks, and a snake comes out and bites him. And they all think he's going to die. Shakes it off into the fire. Why? Because the Spirit of God supernaturally healed him instantly. They all think he's a god at the time, and he gets to kind of, no, 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 I'm not a god. Now, God still does miracles, some incredible things. Last night I was listening to a commentary by Joe Foch, um, and he was talking about this lady, uh, Laurel Lee. She was terminally ill with cancer. Um, she'd been very, very unwell for a long time. For eight months she'd been in hospital, and all the, the medics were saying, you're going to die, you're going to die. Uh, and she was saying, no, I'm not. I believe that God's going to heal me. And they said, no, I'm sorry, you're going to die. And she said, no, no, I'm not. God's going to heal me. And they had kind of this standoff for this whole time. And then eventually she was miraculously healed. Miraculously healed. And she got up and she walked out of there. Interestingly enough, as a result of this, she kind of wrote her memoirs in this book. And a little bit later, Billy Graham apparently got in touch with her and said that he was on his way to... Russia. And he said, would you come with me? I want to take Bibles in. And so she kind of agreed, but then all of a sudden the cancer came back. And so she again went for treatment and she lost her hair and so on. 
And she initially said to Billy Graham she couldn't go. And then she said, you know what, actually, I'll go. I'll come with you. So she grabbed this only coat that she could find that was warm enough, which is an old fur coat. And she put this kind of um, headscarf on her head and so on and made this journey. And she's walking past this checkpoint in Russia with these two suitcases full of her Bibles, knowing that if she's caught, she could be killed. And they see her and they just wave her straight through. And she looks around. And she suddenly noticed that all the Russian ladies were wearing these fur coats and these headscarves. She got back to America, went for tests, and she was completely healed again. Just what an amazing God we serve. You know, sometimes we read these things and we don't necessarily think it's for today, but it is for today. God still heals. God still does miraculous things. It doesn't mean that for everybody that's what will happen. But in God's plan and God's purpose, he still does miracles. And we must believe the disciples didn't believe the greatest miracle of all, that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they're rebuked for it. Let us not be rebuked for not believing that Jesus can do these things. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. You know, that's where he's staying, he's remaining until he comes back for us. Joseph of Arimathea, by the way, we looked at last week, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And the, the, the implication of the text, he was continually waiting. He was looking, he was expecting at any moment. And that's what we should be like. And then finally, verse 20, and they went forth and preached everywhere. Nobody was now going to stop the disciples telling them. Remember when we started this journey that Mark wanted to get across just how excited he was about Jesus. Because he wants us to go out and share the joy, the excitement, the hope that we have. And his gospel ends here. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word. And Father, man's best attempts will not succeed. We thank you, Lord, that we have your word that we can read, that we can trust, that we can learn and we can study and grow through. Lord, help us to really believe these things in our heart, to know that you are a risen Savior. Lord, this world needs to hear that you are a risen Savior and they won't hear it from the media. They won't hear it from most of the churches. But Lord, let us go. Lord, let us be witnesses, Lord, as those early disciples were. Lord, not counting our own lives dear unto ourselves that we may finish the work assigned us by Jesus. The work of testifying. The work of being witnesses for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week as we walk in his grace.